You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Daniel Jones. Love is the real stuff of life. Like it's the most important thing in life and it has to do with human relationships and that feeling of being drawn to things and wanting to protect them and wanting to be good is just the, you know, the most important force we have. That is Daniel Jones, the editor for the New York Times essay column, Modern Love, which started in 2004 and has run every week on Sundays in The Times. The column has been adapted into a two-season original series on Amazon Prime Video, where Daniel served as a consulting producer. The series ran from 2019 to 2021 and starred dozens of household names such as Anne Hathaway, Tina Fey, Andy Garcia, and Dev Patel. Daniel is also the author of several books, including various collections of essays from the Modern Love column, as well as several other original works on love and marriage. I can't wait for you to fall in love with this conversation with Daniel Jones. Hi, Daniel. How are you? 
I am good. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for being on to Dine for the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I am so fascinated by your journey, and I hope you don't mind if we just dive right in. Sure. Okay, great. Well, I always start this podcast in the same manner, and that is I ask the guest, where is their favorite restaurant? I really believe restaurants are the beginning of someone's story. It may, not the whole story, but a little bit Mm -hmm. of a tip of the hat to where you're from or just something you love. So if I were going to ask you if we were going to dine and you were going to take me to one of your favorite spots, where would that be? Uh, I spent um, the first six years of my life in Tucson, Arizona, and then I went back for graduate school. So in my 20s. And there's a place uh, in downtown Tucson called El Charo. Okay. It's in the quaintest sort of most adobe building kind of area of Tucson. It's a really historic place. And they have a kind of sun-dried meat called barbacoa. Mm-hmm. I'm I don't eat that much meat anymore, but if I were to start eating meat again, it would be, it would be at El Charo eating that <laughs> sun-dried meat. And it just for me, it, take, it takes me back to my childhood being in Tucson as a little kid and then coming back there as an adult. And it's not even, it's not even my favorite restaurant, it's, but it's a place that just captures sort of a lot of my life and my formative years and then in graduate school and deciding to become a writer and editor and all of that. So it's, a, it's sort of like a nostalgia that leads, leads you back to El Charo along with the barbacoa. Exactly. It's the food and the atmosphere and the memories that it evokes. And it's such good food. It's such good Mexican food. It's such good chips and salsa that you can't get. I don't care. Like, in, you can have good Mexican food in New York, but you can't have that kind of authentic Mexican food like you can get the Mexican border. And certainly not in Northampton, Massachusetts. Probably not. <laughs> no shade to my fellow <laughs> not Massachusetts. Yet. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no shade to my fellow Massachusetts folks, but yeah. That's great. That's great. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. I really appreciate it. Let's let's start exactly where you sort of led me to, which is graduate school. You mm-hmm. Did you know you wanted to be a writer? What were you uh, majoring in and what was your dream for yourself at that moment in time? Yeah, I, I went to University of Virginia undergraduate, had no idea that I wanted to be a writer at all, but was doing pretty badly at everything else, honestly. <laughs> like I, I I was taking required math courses and economics courses and thinking I would be some sort of generic businessman. Luckily, wasn't good at any of that, and then discovered the English department there and very quickly got into writing. And it was really it for me. It was the thing that really got me going. And you said, I'm going to make a career out of this. I'm going to make a career as a writer. Um, yeah, I, I had this aspiration. Because that's bold. That's bold. I mean, that I really, that, that takes some chutzpah, you know? My parents were like, well, you might want to have a backup plan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought, if I have a backup plan, then I'm not going to follow through. Yeah, so, um, isn't that the truth? But I, I went out, I moved out west to Utah, where, I be, where I'd been a ski instructor for years in high school. And I went out to Utah and was a ski instructor for a couple of years in, at Deer Valley, which is in Park City. Yes, beautiful. I did that in the winter. And then I had a lot of summer months where I was just sort of partly employed and wrote and then went to grad school. And I was there for you know, five or six years um, teaching and writing. Yeah, it's what I wanted to do. I wanted to find a way to to write and work with words one way or another. And I, I didn't know what it was going to pay. <laughs> you followed your passion. Yeah, it was my dream. Yeah, totally. it was your dream. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, 
hats off to the people who really go after not only what they're good at, but what they love. So you're already winning before you even start, I think, if you follow that recipe. Let me ask yeah. you this. What what do you think, as you, you kind of explained the, the beginning of your career, writing here and there, what was your big break and what got you to the New York Times? My big break in writing was um, I got married. We moved to New York and uh, I needed to get a job. And so I was working, doing sort of communications work for nonprofit organizations and I'd given up writing, honestly. It was really? a, it was a huge uh, monkey on my back. I had no time for it. I w- needed to make a living. And the writing I was doing was promotional copy for annual reports. And Okay, Daniel, this sort of time out. This is a crucial part of your story here. We've kind of glossed over it. Let's not gloss over it. Uh-huh. So you're saying you have the dream, you want to pursue it, but you actually don't have much luck in it. So you take a job in doing communications writing. Exactly. And you've kind of, in a way, the dream has not died, but withered. Yep. And you, okay, take me to that moment. From there, how do you get back into it? In, in, in the way, working at the New York Times, right? Like, that's epic. Take me yeah. from from the, the dream withering to where you are. Yeah, I, w- I was um, working at these jobs. We had a, a, a little girl. I just had no time. You know, the evenings were taken up, days were taken up. I was working full time plus. And then we had, uh, we got pregnant with a second child, a son who was on the way. And I just thought if my life wasn't over with one child, it's definitely going to be over (laughs) with two children. And so, and so I just, I'd started a novel in graduates at the end of graduate school that I had about like 80 pages worth. And I just thought if I'm, I have to write this novel before my son is born. And that's, that's a good deadline. Yeah, I had about eight months and I basically did. I almost wrote the whole thing. I put, started with those pages and cut it down to stuff that about 40 pages that worked. And then every night after the kids went to bed, I would work from like nine until one in the morning. Wow. And then I would print out that material. And then at lunch at work, I'd go off to the same pizza shop pretty much every day and go through those pages and edit them. And then the next night I would, and I did that. Yeah. I did that for about eight months solid and didn't quite finish, but got within striking distance and then had to take a break from it for about three months during my son's first three months and then picked it up again and finished it. And the the real change, the, the moment in my life was, um, was taking that that novel that it was like a, the first two chapters and a cover letter and dropping it off at the messenger center for this agent that I represented every writer I admired. Her name's Amanda Urban and she's at ICM and is still there and still my agent. But she represented Toni Morrison and Carmack McCarthy and just, just every, every writer I admired, I dropped it off. And the next day, her assistant said, she'd like to read the whole novel over the weekend. And so I went to the, I was at work and I just started printing out the rest of the book like mad at work, dropped it off. And the following Tuesday, she called and said, I'd like to represent your novel. And what was that moment like for you? Oh my God. It was out of body. I never, I just never thought that would happen. I was terrified of her, honestly, when I got on the phone. And I remained terrified of her for about (laughs) 15 years. Now we're in a good place. (laughs) You never forget that first break, that first moment where you get either a green light or some sort of validation that maybe your passion 
has legs, you know, yeah. and you, you can you can do something with it. What was the name of that book? And was it was it success? It was a novel. It's a novel. It's called After Lucy. It's about it's about a young family where the father has given up his creative dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like me. <laughs> Art imitating um, life. I know. So that was that was the leaping off point. Everything that happens in the novel didn't happen in real life, but mm-hmm. um, that was all invented. But the the impetus for it and the, the emotion behind it was all true. Take me from that moment to modern love in 2004. Give mm-hmm. me give me the cliff notes of that bridge of your career and how did modern love begin? Yeah, I'll try to try to do it quickly. The, my wife who is also an editor and writer, we ended up leaving New York and moving to Massachusetts to raise our children because New York just became very hard to afford. And when we were in Northampton, Massachusetts, and trying to sort of co-parent and work. And she and all of her friends were, were were struggling with just the early years of motherhood and career and balancing all of that. And she she saw an opportunity for a nonfiction book, a collection of essays in that material that she called The Bitch in the House. <laughs> 26 <laughs> Women Told the Truth About Sex, Solitude, Work, Motherhood, and Marriage. I love it. And she commissioned both friends and strangers and well-known writers and less well-known writers to write about that subject, basically. What is what is um, this with all these pressures and opportunities and what's what's the promise and have we, has the promise delivered? And that book did incredibly well. It was a New York Times bestseller and, and opened the door for, for a male response, which I edited. So we had a husband and wife editing anthologies from his and hers perspective. And mine was called The Bastard on the Couch. <laughs> when these 27 men try really hard to express their feelings about love, loss, fatherhood, and freedom, if I got that right. Um, mm. And those two books together, especially done by husband and wife, got a lot of attention. And the, the then editor of the style section, a guy named Trip Gabriel, they did a story on us. And then he said, I'd like to have this kind of material in styles every week. Mm-hmm. And would you come in and talk to me about it? And we just, we worked together, the three of us, to come up with how we could do a column that would represent contemporary relationships the way they really are. Mm-hmm. And in not far into that process, um, my wife backed out. She was working on a, on a novel and didn't, it wasn't really a job for two people. It was really a job for one person. And I took it over, and um, by the time it launched, I was the the editor of it. I really didn't think it would last. I thought it would last, and my the guy who hired me said I was wondering how long these kinds of columns typically last. And he said, "Oh, they have their shelf life, you know, a year or two. and that's what I was planning for. Wow! <laughs> and so now, here we, here we are. We're almost twenty years, right? Yeah, two thousand four to now, nineteenth year of doing this, and with a podcast and multiple television shows and it's just and we're coming up on yeah 20 years which will be more than a thousand essays and then we have this spin-off column called tiny love stories which are the 100 word love stories that people submit it's become a little franchise we'll have more on this conversation in just a minute but first thank you to our sponsors ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you, so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. Why do you think it has been so successful and had such longevity? I think it's because at the very beginning, so I'd been part of my struggle as a writer was, you know, when you're an unknown writer, you just send things off and usually you don't hear back and it's a very hard process. But I was familiar with the amount of good work out there that must just be looking for a home. And typically how a magazine or a newspaper would try to get material is you go to people who you know can write on a certain subject, who have a reputation, but then you're limited to what you're searching for in a way and the people you know. And what I wanted to do was open it up to everybody, essentially, mm-hmm. by having a, an email address and saying, send, send us your story. And honestly, my boss was a little skeptical about the quality of material we'd receive and that we'd just be deluged with bad material. <laughs> with bad um, writing. Please yeah, don't encourage that, bad writing. <laughs> that you then have to sort through and find. But honestly, it took, it took us about two or three months of kind of priming the pump. And then the material started flooding in. And there's no way to replace that kind of process where everyone is telling you their most important story. They don't have any credentials. A lot of them, they don't, they're just pouring out their story. And some of them are 
are more accomplished writers. Some of them are having their first publication. But to let the world essentially tell you what what you should be publishing instead of you decide, you know, instead mm. of you trying to go out and seek it. And that's what happens. Like it, it, the stuff just comes in and the interesting stories rise to the top and I just go where that leads me. And so it, re it will remain fresh as long as that process is in place, I think. And when you think about identifying the most interesting stories, mm -hmm. what are some of the criteria, what are some of the characteristics that you see in something where you're like, boom, this is it? I think the the first is a sense of humility about your story and about who you are and what you've learned. Because if the story has really shaken you in good ways and bad ways, but if it's really shaken you, you don't come off in sort of an overly stylized way or a braggy way, or you come off with a sense of wisdom and humility. And you can tell that in the writing really quickly, whether someone is trying to impress you or they're just trying to reveal something to you. Mm. And that's really, I'd say, number one. And number two is a sense of you need to be both vulnerable and intelligent You and be able to combine those two things. It's easy to be just a, a mess and tell you, tell your, you know, say like, oh, my God, the world has wronged me and these are all the ways it has. And everybody has that tendency. But to be able to make sense of it, and have a sort of sense of revelation about it is much more difficult and rare. So to be able to, to be both intelligent and, and vulnerable is, is next. What has it been like to have spent nearly 20 years of your life hearing love story after love story after, I'm sure, a lot of tragedy, a lot of yeah. loss, a lot of really pain? What has that done to you personally to have marinated in that for so long? I think it's made me a, just more empathetic toward that you really, toward anyone. I mean, you you get the you just get the feeling that everyone has their struggle. You know it, like we all know that, but mm -hmm. to be reminded of it constantly, I guess there's something about the column really publishes ordinary people, but they make extraordinary choices or they get pressed into a situation that where you would think like I couldn't do that and you see bravery in in people who didn't think they were brave mm. and it's made me feel braver has it yeah a sort of admiring of our capacity of our of capacities we don't really know we have i mean the, the classic example of that is is this woman who adopted a um it was a mother's day piece we ran maybe 10 years ago where she and her husband couldn't conceive and they adopted a baby girl in China. They went to China to pick her up and she, you know, they had the refrigerator magnet of her picture for all these months and anticipating being able to see her, but there's all this red tape that you have to go through at a waiting period and they finally get there. And, and, and in um, filling out the adoption material, you're given options of what, of disabilities and things like that, that you don't think you could deal with. And they didn't think they could deal with any, basically, what they wanted. And I'm not sure how many people would fill those out, honestly, but everyone wants a child who's healthy. And, you know, so they said, well, we couldn't deal with any of those things. And um, and then they got this baby and they took her back to the hotel and they undressed her and they were bathing her for the first time. And there was some there was a scar on her spine and she had a really horrible diaper rash. And they were just sort of concerned about that. And 
took her to the to a doctor and they did a cat scan and all this anyway there was this, they came back with this alarming diagnosis that she'd had a botched spinal surgery and her prognosis was really grim and that she wouldn't walk and that she wouldn't have bowel control and bladder control and she would have seizures and they were just devastated and they went to the adoption agency and said what well what do we do how could this happen and what do we do and they s- apologized and said well we can have you can exchange her essentially for a different child what a decision and gave gave them that choice and they just said well no like she's she's ours we can't handle any of this but (laughs) here we go (laughs) here we go Um, and so that's the kind of bravery i'm talking about where they Mm. just said we can't do we want a perfect child we're not going to be able to deal with anything else and um but they make the choice to stay with this girl who then goes back to the States with them and has does proceed to have seizures and problems. And then it all just sort of clears up and mm. sort of miracle of miracles. She turned out to be that the CAT scan had revealed something that wasn't as serious as what they discovered there. And they've had a, a happy, healthy girl ever since those early years. Wow. You know, we all have different and more difficult assignments. I'm always amazed though. Some people's assignment in life is so incredibly difficult and um, their ability to, to forge on in the face of it. It sounds like this has really turned into sort of an unexpected career for you. You wanted to be a writer, Mm -hmm. but you have really developed a niche. I know that Modern Love became an Amazon Prime series. You were a producer on that. What mm-hmm. was that experience like? And what was your role in it? It's one of the most fun things I've ever <laughs> done in my life. Really? Honestly. Yeah. My role changed at the beginning. I was mostly advising them about material. They would ask me for different kinds of stories, different subject situations, and I would provide them with all kinds of stories and that they could work from and they just read a lot on their own but the, the all the early decisions are what are we going to do what what kind of stories are we going to do how are we going to make a season so i was involved at that end and then once they started production i just showed up when i could it was all being filmed in new york city and i would mm-hmm. leave work the most fun playing hooky i've ever done <laughs> <laughs> leave work for hours and go to the set and um they'd put me in as an extra a few times and that kind of thing <laughs> i'm a terrible actor um <laughs> It's, it was fun being part of a team. My work is not teamwork. Mm. And I do, I have, you know, one colleague I work closely with and then other people on the styles desk who I work with, but it's a, it's a pretty solitary job most of the time. And do you like it that way? Do you like for the most of your life, you're, you're very insular? I, um, yeah, it's what I tend toward, mm-hmm. but not completely. And I, mm-hmm. and I was, so I loved being on this team where we would sit around and talk about different concerns and how to how to go about making the show, um, what to emphasize. And then th- that was sort of the small team of producers and creative people. And then there was on set, you know, 100, 150 people. Like it just was incredible to me how many people are needed for that kind of thing and shutting down streets for film shoots and taking over people's apartments and all of that. So it was, it was just really, really fun and a di- completely different world for me. Did it inspire you when you think about your own writing 
to write in a different way because what's so cool about adapting something to the screen, whether it's the small screen or the large screen, it takes such imagination and vision, but at the heart of it is a fantastic idea. And mm -hmm. what you do is put to words a fantastic idea. So I'm wondering if it changed the way you write it all. What was helpful to me was uh, the showrunner is the filmmaker, John Carney, who's an Irish and is very good with love stories um, and emotions and making people cry, basically, which was a good match for modern love. But it was interesting for me to hear what he, as a lifelong creative person who comes up with his own stories and adapts other people's stories, what he saw in modern love. And he had a very specific take. And he said, there's, there's a line in every essay that is a revelation. And I didn't really realize that. Like it, it took him saying, like, there's always a line that just really is a big transition or revelation or idea. And that's sort of what he would seize on. And I guess he could, that would, that gave him a sort of story arc to work with. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And if you think about great stories, like even just stories by voice, if I'm going to tell you a story, right? Like about something that happened on Friday night, right. you know, I, I have an intriguing beginning, you know, I, I tell you that I, you know, headed down to the local pub and I wasn't in a good mood mm -hmm. and then something happens. And then there's always a line of revelation that gives meaning to the story. So exactly. it's a real, it's a really wonderful foundation for people listening. If they're trying to be a better storyteller, whether that's just speaking or, you know, writing, to, to have that point of revelation as sort of your, your apex. Yeah, it's the wisdom, you know, it's really the, it's, it's how you've changed, what you've learned. And it's the part that's not easy, you know. Right. A lot of us can be in therapy for years and years and never have that revelation. But that's <laughs> We're the, still waiting for our line <laughs> to pop out. <laughs> like, who am I? Who am I? And what am I now? And what have I learned? They're hard questions, but that's what makes a story. And that's what takes it from just being, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, which is a lot of what our storytelling is. Right. And elevates it into something that can be more universal because um, it, it has a wisdom that is not only, you know, applies to you, but applies to almost everybody. I interviewed Phil Rosenthal of Everybody Loves Raymond fame, who also has a Netflix show about eating. Mm -hmm. And um, we talked a little bit about writing for TV. And he said something really interesting. And I wonder if you agree. He said that when people write, sometimes they want to appeal to so many people that they keep it general. But mm -hmm. really, the magic is in the specificity that the more specific you can be, that might not that might the world may not understand in that specificity is a, a, a general approach, meaning people can connect to, you know, having an obsession with bagels and you have to put on the cream cheese and then a little bit of jelly exactly the same way. <laughs> Even though they don't do that, there is more relatability in specificity. Yeah. I'm wondering if you see that as well. I see that. And a, and a different wrinkle on that is that often new writers don't trust that their experience is meaningful enough. Ooh. They're not confident. And so they generalize. They try to reach beyond themselves or make their story more general. But it is in the specificity. Disappointment is disappointment and loss is loss. And as long as you're writing about those things, it's the specificity that really people who are reading cling to and what makes your story 
seems special and, and meaningful. And but people often don't. Yeah, it takes a while to trust your own the value of your own experience. Right. As, no matter what age you are, no matter where you are yeah. in life. Yes, it has value, yeah. even if you're 19 years old. What about you as far as your career? Do you want to continue on with Modern Love Forever? What is your what are your aspirations? Like what would you like to create yourself or what what's uh, what's currently on your radar of what of what Daniel would like to do? Yeah, I've been thinking about this because I'm getting up there in age, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I would like next to work on work on a book that is teaching about this kind of writing. Mm. And I have a title in mind and an approach in mind and a bunch of material so far, but I'm not going to say all that publicly. But, That's our next um, interview, Daniel. Okay. <laughs> when you get that book Good. out. That'll give me a, that'll give me a deadline. Um, <laughs> You're giving me a tease. I love it. But I'd like to, I'd like to get into uh, sort of co cobble together a life that has to do with teaching what I've learned. Um, mm. Not so much doing what I do anymore, but teaching what I've learned, whether that's through a combination of books and uh, university teaching or uh, along with sort of online, these kind of online masterclass kind of things. And I like, honestly, with Modern Love specifically, I want to be able to perform it, which is increasingly in recent years, well, until COVID, um, we, we were doing, we were performing Modern Love in different ways and in theater shows or at festivals. And it really brings together through music and storytelling and in-person, uh, almost like moth type mm -hmm. storytelling that brings together all the pieces of modern love for an audience to enjoy. And I'm hoping we were working in that direction before COVID, and I hope we can return to that. I'm going to ask a question that I'm sure you've been asked many, many times. So excuse the banality of this question, but I think it really <laughs> is sort of the essence of spending almost 20 years doing this. But what have you personally learned about love that has affected you having been a part of this column for so long? Well, I'll answer in an equally banal way. Because <laughs> Please don't! <laughs> the, things, the things that I've learned are sort of age-old truisms that you never quite believe, but that in, in relationships about being kind and honest, I, I almost, I feel like these stories have generally been about kindness and truth-telling. Mm. And I think that's a, truth-telling can be harsh, but I, I, but I think there's a, in, in relationships, there has to be sort of a, a selfishness and a selflessness but it has to it has to do with truth and kindness and i don't know i just i feel like those are the those are the sort of pillars of this kind of writing and those are the pillars of a successful relationship do you think your work has made you made your relationship stronger or has it exposed you to a wealth of a world of love that might seem unattainable i think it's made me less afraid of conflict um, less afraid of conflict. Less afraid of conflict, which I used to be really afraid of, honestly. Mm -hmm. And and just in terms of growth and and again, not conflict in like yelling at people or physical conflict or something like that, but conflict in terms of I want this thing, you want that thing. How are we going to like being on, just being honest about what you need and um, how to how to get there and not being afraid of disappointing people, not being afraid of that there's an other side to the conflict. 
And you just see that again and again in these in these stories. Like the worst, the thing that was the worst thing you thought was going to happen happens, and then you move past it. Almost like truth telling is an act of love. Like so yeah. often we're we're told that you know that that you know in a romantic way we're supposed to be nice and kind to protect people's feelings. Feel like, protect exactly yeah. protect people's feelings, yeah. but actually being honest about your your own needs and their own needs is real love. Yeah, and it's such a relief. Like <laughs> it's kind of a relief. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it all sort of comes together in those ways. I feel like as sort of a a lesson in how to how to live a good life. And I do I do think that we publish all the stuff for the you know all these these essays, but there's so much that comes in that we don't publish, but that's also instructive. And for me, it's it's so easy to see. Um, there's a lot to be learned from bad writing. Honestly, mm. and and people who don't they they haven't really figured anything out, but they're still putting themselves out there. And you see a lot of a lot of people who are too scared to love again after loss, and whether that loss was a breakup or a divorce or a death, they just can't. And mm. and they're embittered. They can be embittered by that. They can just sort of retreat and give up. And then you see people who suffer horrible losses, um, the loss of a child. As, who then have another child or adopt a child. And that ability, like that dividing line is the dividing line between a happy life and an unhappy life is, wow. is how, how you, and you you just see it in this material over and over and over to, to again, it's not necessarily conflict, but loss. Um, and to just t- process that and turn from it and, you know, redirect that love somewhere else and open open yourself up again. Some people do that and some people don't. And mm. that's all the difference. <laughs> it, it, that's so that's that's fascinating. And it has to do with personality, temperament and ability to cope. Yeah. You know, different people have different coping skills and, and, and how they interact with the world. And the world is a tough place these days. Like I, I feel for people who aren't able to like there's just a, it just feels like there's a lot to battle these days and uh, the sense of giving up is probably overwhelming in a lot of cases but I, I don't know what the what the secret power is to going forward but you definitely see it in people you know you see it in your friends and you see it in your family and who um who starts to retreat and who starts to just give up and who just forges ahead and it's really um to see that in thousands of stories every year makes it clear mm. yeah. and i think and tell me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like um, over the years, it's probably been a tour de force of trying to incorporate different aspects of love. You know, it isn't uh-huh. just romantic love or mother and child love. There's a, it could be neighbors. It could, and, and obviously uh, the most more diverse and the more expansive of LGBTQ relationships. Right. What What kind of thought, energy, and effort have you put in to really showing the full spectrum of what love can look like um, in the modern era. Well, that, along with opening up the inbox to whoever wants to submit, that was sort of a founding principle of the column as well. It wasn't going to be just about romantic love. It was going to be, um, and I think even our concept of what love is, love is tied to like romance and they're so different. Like it's just, it's not, love is the real stuff of life. Like it's, the most important thing in life. And it has to do with human relationships and that feeling of being drawn to things and wanting to protect them and wanting to be good is just the, you know, the most important force we have. 
So it's not, it's hardly like siloed. It's like romantic love and Valentine's Day. Like it's, it's, it's everything. Um, when you, when you hear people talk about their, the things they cherish in life and their regrets, you know, they don't usually say, God, if only I'd spent more time at the office. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. My 401k. Was, yes. So, um, it's that. And, and there is such a range. And what people write about teaches me about that range all the time and what they try to, you know, what people desire and what they feel ashamed of desiring and what kind of relationships they have and where they live and what race they are and just all these things, these complicated things that come into it, we wanted to represent as broad a spectrum of that as possible. And every once in a while, something will almost seem just out of bounds. And like, if modern love is this umbrella, you know, and we'll just sort of like scoot it in to the edge of, to the edge of being under that umbrella, just because it's an interesting story. And it's, it's close enough. But and the only thing we don't really do is like, and we sometimes get material like this, but love of Love of a city or love of your favorite <laughs> restaurant or something like that. Hello to dine for. Uh, yeah, I could I could write a whole piece for you on on my my real love of certain restaurants and and why right. I love them, which it really actually does have some depth to it beyond delicious food. What a legacy! What a legacy that you've created and you and your wife who who helped spearhead this have put out into the world. This has oh, been fascinating. You. I could honestly talk to you for another two hours, but I know you have <laughs> things to do. <laughs> and it is out of love, Daniel, that I am letting you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it so much. Have a wonderful I have day. Too. Thank right. you. Thanks for listening to To Dine For the Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.